Welcome back to the Alpha Females Invest Podcast, two females working in the finance industry searching for Alpha. My name is Clooney. And my name is Emily. And together, we bring diversified perspectives from the buy and sell side of the finance world. We aim to provide listeners with a deep dive into financial topics by interviewing experts in the field. As we both work in finance, we can get into the nitty gritty and ask the technical questions on topical financial issues. But before we start with any hard-hitting financial questions, each week we ask our guests what their most embarrassing career moment is, and we thought episode three was a good chance to get to know us a little bit better. So Clooney, would you be happy to share your most embarrassing career moment? Thanks for the um, prep there, Em. None none whatsoever. Um, Well, safe to say I've had a few embarrassing career moments, and I think I've definitely had my my fair share, but one of the ones that really stick with me and, and probably still haunts me to this day is in my first year of work at a big finance firm, I happened to jump into the lift with the CEO of the company, just me and him. So I thought to myself, what an opportune time to introduce myself. So with all the confidence I could muster up, I said, good morning, Andrew. My name's Clooney and I'm a new grad at your firm. <laughs> he smiled at me and he sort of gave me this funny look and, and said hello politely back. I was a bit perplexed as to why the the conversation didn't really continue, but as the lift continued its way to the ground floor, I started to have an overwhelming, sinking feeling that the CEO's name was most definitely not Andrew. (laughs) In fact, it actually wasn't even close to his actual name. So the lift ride ended a bit too quickly for me to rectify my mistake, but... um, (laughs) To this day, I'm sure he remembers, and I now take every opportunity to make sure I call the CEO by the right name. That's hilarious. I love that story. I was cacking myself. (laughs) So just to remind everyone who's listening that any information discussed in this podcast is obviously not financial advice, and all opinions do reflect those of the individual's. You should, of course, always read the PDS and talk to a financial advisor who can consider your personal circumstances before you invest in any products. So today on our third episode, we have Brad Dunn, who is a credit specialist at Daintree Capital. Daintree Capital are specialists in the management of absolute return income portfolios focused on capital preservation through mostly fixed income securities. Previously, Brad spent 10 years at Ordminet as a fixed income portfolio manager. He's the perfect person to discuss why we should all be watching the bond market and the credit cycles. So Brad, I guess to kick it off today, welcome, firstly. (laughs) Thank you very much. Could you, uh, just like I shared, potentially share with us your most embarrassing career moment? I'm sure it's definitely not as bad as mine. Sure. Well, I'll tell you and then I'll let the listeners decide, I guess. As a sprightly young analyst myself, I was uh, tasked with running a morning meeting every morning for about 150-odd advisors. And uh, one morning we had the CEO of a wind energy company come in. You know, just presenting to the network a bit of a business update and, you know, spruiking the story. And his name was Miles George. But I got up in front of the meeting and, you know, everyone was sort of poised, ready to start the meeting. And I introduced Miles Davis to the crowd, the famous jazz trumpeter. (laughs) (laughs) So he, he sort of took a bit of a double look to the side because I suspected that he got it more often than he would have liked. But, uh, yeah, I, I came out with the old Miles Davis introduction as opposed to his actual name. So... Off to a great start, but the presentation went really well and it all worked out from there. So a bit of a red face for a couple of minutes. I feel there's a, a common theme there with getting the names not quite right. 
<laughs> but it sounds like it doesn't affect your career. So it's only upwards from here, Clooney. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Great. So let's uh, dive into a little bit about you, Brad, and what really does your role involve? What is a credit analyst and what does Daintree do? Yeah. So Daintree, as Clooney sort of alluded to in her introduction, we're in the credit space mainly. So in fixed income, there's generally two main streams. One is credit, one is uh, genuine fixed income, which is, you know, bonds or government bonds generally is the... uh, the more correct way to describe them. And what we do is we build portfolios of credit assets. We don't have the restriction of an index and we don't have the restriction of staying in Australia. So our universe is relatively large, but we take a number of decisions and we use a number of methods to sort of whittle it down to a really manageable universe that we can then create a portfolio from. Now, as a credit analyst, my job is to... It's effectively being an investment analyst, but focusing on different part of the financial statements as a general comment. As an equity analyst, I suspect you probably look at the P&L and cash flow as the two main statements, whereas the balance sheet is the number one stop for us as a credit analyst. So we're looking at the business from the perspective of how does it fund itself? And especially when it comes to the debt side, how do they fund themselves? Where do they fund themselves? and all of the things that go along with that. So really, we're just another type of investment analyst that focus on a different financial statement as a starting point. Of course, cash flow is important for us as well. But um, if we don't understand how they fund themselves, whether they can get access to financing at the right times, what do the banks think about them, and all of those other factors, it's going to be pretty hard for us to do our job. So that would be the, the most succinct way I could describe it, I guess. And I guess going on from that, I feel everyone sort of follows the equity market and has an understanding to a degree of the stock market. I feel like there's not as much chatter around the bond market. So could you give us a bit of an indication of how big the bond market is versus the equity market? Yeah, I was thinking about this over the last couple of days. And the best analogy I can think of is if you pick up a tennis ball, look at a tennis ball and consider that to be the equity market in totality. Then if you pick up a basketball and compare the two, That's comparing the bond market to the equity market. Now, when I say bond market, that includes all government bonds and all the credit securities that companies issue. And even using that analogy, it's fair to say that it's quite a bit larger. But the reality is it's quite a bit larger because governments especially, um, what we've seen over the period past the GFC, is their ability to create a lot of money quite quickly. And a lot of that actually comes about via the government bond market. So as we've seen the GFC and now the the COVID recovery, what we've seen is a lot of borrowing effectively pop out of thin air because of central bank support. So that's really sort of put a rocket under the, the fixed income market and really seen it grow quite a bit larger in comparison to the growth rates of equity markets, even though many equity markets are sort of touching on record highs at the moment. Wow. So given that huge size, why do you think there's not I guess, as much information or as much of a following around the bond market? Yeah, it's an interesting question. But to be honest, the uh, sort of the daily gyrations of the stock market, it's a lot more interesting for people to get their head around. So in the stock market, you can have a great stock story. There's a, you know, a new company that's been built over a number of years. They've listed to a lot of fanfare. There's been a lot of catalysts along the way. So there's something to keep you interested In bond markets, it's a lot more high level. It's a lot more macro thinking. You've got to think about some factors that are sort of 20 years in the making and could impact things 20 years in the future. 
And that takes a lot of a different skill set and a lot of a different mindset than finding the next afterpay or finding the next 10 bagger, so to speak, which is always happening in equity markets. And there's always a lot of you know movement and ideas and ups and downs. And it is the case in parts of the credit market, but it's certainly not to the same degree as you would see in the equity space. It's so interesting because I remember the first time I learned about the difference in size between the bond market and the equity market. I was pretty shocked given that, you know, most conversations I have in finance are around the equity market, which is really dwarfed by the fixed income market. So I guess given that it's so big, what really are the benefits in investing in fixed income versus equity products or versus just holding cash in a bank? Could you take us through some ideas around that? Yeah. Realistically, it's not a case of one or the other. Realistically, it's just a case of you need to have a bit of everything. And that, of course, depends on your stage of your investing life cycle, depends on your risk appetite, you know, depends on a whole range of other factors too. So I don't really look at it as a either or. But in terms of fixed income, because that universe is so large, it can be overwhelming to say, where do I even start? And also as well, even sort of at a much more micro level, when you've got you know, interest rates as low as they are now, it can be a little daunting looking at these low interest rates and saying, where do I even start in terms of finding something that is going to sort of return me a little bit better than cash without me taking unnecessary risks. So, you know, there are still high yields out there, but are you willing to invest in, you know, Venezuelan government bonds or are you willing to invest in the bonds of emerging market countries like, you know, Kenya or Ethiopia? Because they all have bonds available for sale but do you know the dynamics of the, the Kenyan economy at the moment? I know I don't. I definitely don't. <laughs> and I think it's, it's very rare that there would be sort of an emerging market specialist that would be out there in mum and dad land that could make those kind of decisions. So a lot of the market is kind of closed simply for that reason. But, I mean, there are other factors as well. So one of the key roadblocks for individual investors to access the fixed income market is because the average trade size is just so much larger. It's effectively a wholesale market. So by that, I mean, for someone coming in wanting to say, all right, I like Woolworths. I think they're a good company. They're well run. They've just spun Endeavor, the alcohol and the gambling part out of the business, which helps me from an ESG perspective. So now I like Woolworths, the uh, the supermarkets even more. But I'd, I'd like to buy some bonds of Woolworths because equity is just a little bit too high risk for me at my stage of investing. Now, that's all fine. But uh, if you wanted to go to the wholesale market directly, the very minimum size you can trade the Woolworths bond is $200,000. And for most people, that's just way too much for a single bond in their portfolio, given their total amount of funds to invest and, you know, thinking about diversification and all those things. It would just be simply too hard to build a portfolio from scratch as a retail investor. I know that's definitely kicked me out of the game. Um, So I guess in your previous answer, you just touched on interest rates being extremely low. Could you just explain the yield curve and what drives changes in the yield curve, I guess, how that relates to interest rates and the relationship between price and yields? Yeah, sure. So the first thing to remember when it comes to fixed income, especially with fixed rate bonds, is that when interest rates go up, bond prices go down. So that's the first thing to remember. And, and if you remember that, you're pretty far along the, uh, the curve already when it comes to getting your head around fixed income as a proposition. But back to the sort of the first part of your question. So the yield curve is really just a set of interest rates being offered by a country or a company. 
at different points in a maturity cycle. So a yield curve is just a grouping of yields from the same country or company based on how long the bond is until maturity. So if you think about it, if you're going to lend your money to Woolworths for one year, you're going to be reasonably confident that they'll be around in one year's time to pay you your interest and then pay your face value back at maturity. Now, if you're going to lend money to Woolworths for 30 years, then I'm still pretty confident that they would be around in 30 years to pay you back your principal and pay you your interest along the way, but you're taking a much greater level of risk to lend them money for that period of time. So you're going to need a higher interest rate. And what the yield curve does is it really just shows you the level of extra return that you're going to receive for lending money for longer periods of time. And there's not just one yield curve, there's lots of yield curves. So it's it's very much company or country or sector specific. Now, Brad, where were you when I was studying for my CFA exam? That's all I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I reckon that could have really come in hand. Yes, I, I've got memories myself of the old CFA days. They were tough. Yeah, it's not an easy exam. So could you, I guess, touch on the impacts of duration on a fixed income portfolio and how you think about or what even is convexity? Sure. So I'll deal with duration first. Duration is the sensitivity of a bond's price in response to a movement in yield. So when we talk about duration, we define it in terms of years. So a bond with one year's duration where we see interest rates rise by 1%, that will translate into a 1% drop in the price of that bond. If a similar bond has a duration of five years and we see those interest rates move up by that same 1%, that bond with five years duration will see its price drop by 5%. So the duration is just the sensitivity of a bond's price relative to the movement in interest rates. Now, you need to go back to your high school maths to understand a little bit more about convexity, but essentially convexity is the second derivative of duration. So whereas duration is the movement in price based on the yield, the convexity is effectively the movement in duration, the change in duration for the change in yield. And why is duration important in a bond portfolio at the moment? Yeah, duration is important because it gives you one of the best indicators of how much risk you're taking to achieve your yield return. So a consistent theme we've seen in Australia for about the last 30 years or so is that the duration of the main index has continued to trickle higher. And what that means is that as interest rates fall, it becomes cheaper for governments to borrow for longer tenors. So a government could borrow at seven years at a certain rate. As interest rates fall, they can look at the yield curve and say, well, we can now basically borrow for 10 years at the same rate as we could borrow for seven a few years ago. And that, of course, if the market's willing to support them, they will do that. That's continued on in a sort of fairly similar fashion like that for about 30 years. So today we find ourselves with the proposition of having a duration exposure in the main index. So if you were to buy an index tracking ETF in the fixed income space here in Australia, you're being offered a duration of about 6.5 and a starting yield of about 1.1%. If you go back to what we were just talking about, that equation, you can see that it doesn't take very much of a movement in yield upwards to almost eat into a whole year's worth of return. So the maths is roughly 16 basis points tick up in interest rate would gobble up a year's worth of income return. Now, 16 basis points of movement isn't particularly a lot, 
especially when in the market at the moment, the dominant narrative is that inflation is coming down the pipe. There's been severe disruptions to supply chains across the world. And there's the potential that as borders stay closed here in Australia, for example, for an extended period, we won't have that migrant and uh, transitory worker group that comes in and, and helps with everything from picking fruit to serving coffees to working in restaurants, in which case there's a potential for wages to start moving as well. So in the context of potentially inflation ticking up fairly considerably in the next few years, you're being offered this situation where you've got high duration, low starting yield, and the possibility of seeing even severe capital losses in a technically safe investment like fixed income. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And sorry to jump in here, Clunes, but just quickly, is that kind of why active management in the fixed income space is quite important? Yeah, definitely. We think so. So one of the things that we like to, to tell people is that when you think about index investing in the equity space, what you're really saying is you, you know, you're sort of going to track that index and the index reflects some of the best performers in, in the market. So the better a company goes, the higher its market cap goes, the greater its weighting in the index. And then the more that uh, index investing ETF or that index investing investor is exposed to those better companies. Now, fixed income indices are constructed effectively the same way. So what you end up with is you end up with a growing exposure to the most indebted companies or the most indebted countries, and that's that's not great over time. So an index investor in fixed income is actually exposing themselves to additional risk over time because the biggest borrowers make it to the top of the pile and you're overexposed to the highest borrowers, which can cause problems, especially when interest rates rise because all of that borrowing becomes much more expensive to refinance, and then you're caught up in the other other side of that whirlpool and you end up fostering losses that, again, as I said, are supposed to not really occur in such a, a safe, quote unquote, asset class. So I guess then you've touched a lot on the impacts of volatility within the yield curve. On our first episode, we spoke about the impact of rising rates on technology company valuations. How does that then really impact the equity market, I guess, um, besides ETFs per se? Yeah. So the main way that uh, rates flow through to the equity market is in terms of the valuation of future cash flows. So as an equity investor, when you're building your DCF model, you need to make an assumption about what the cost of capital is into the future, because it, it drives so much of what the output of your model says in terms of valuation and DCF and the sorts of things that you use to actually put a price on the, on the individual stock. And as interest rates are low, the market becomes more and more comfortable to forecast those rates staying low further into the future. But the, the risk is that, as we've talked about, there's an inflation shock or there's some other thing that comes through the system that the market's not anticipating and those assumptions that are looking quite bullish in terms of rates staying lower for longer could change. Where will that flow through to? It probably flows through hardest to the higher growth technology stocks because they're the ones where you need to take the most liberty in terms of you know, putting multiples on future earnings to justify the sorts of levels that they're trading at at the moment. So they seem quite exposed to interest rates at the moment. Curiously, just a sort of a, a brief market comment here, I've been surprised that the uh, unwillingness of US rates investors to really start to flow through some of those inflation expectations to, say, the, you know, the US 10-year yield because it's been remarkably calm, 
despite all of the data that's starting to flow through, not just official data, but anecdotal data as well about the risk of inflation. So I think it's really curious that, you know, it feels like one of those times at the moment where it's almost too calm. You're waiting for the next left field event or you're waiting for the next thing that really sort of shakes the market off because it just seems way too calm given all the uh, the cross currents that are coming through at the moment. So is that what you're most worried about at the moment, I guess? And what do you think the outlook is for bonds? Do you think we do get a lot more volatility in that space going forward? I think we do. But as, as always, you can pick a level, but you can't pick the timing. So I think rates are going higher, but the timing of which is still very uncertain. There's a lot of talk about central banks and the and the Federal Reserve, of course, is the, sort of the main one that the world looks to. And they've got a symposium coming up in a couple of weeks' time at Jackson Hole, their usual annual symposium. And it's it's really closely watched because a lot of the Fed governors get to, you know, speak on quite a broad platform and, you know, try and enunciate some of the key issues that they think about when they put their dot plot together and, and all of these things that the market really watches quite closely. So I think that's coming up in the next little while, and that could certainly be a catalyst for some renewed volatility. But as I said, I think just the case of markets being so calm is cause for concern in and of itself, because I just don't think they're necessarily taking seriously some of the things going on that could lead to higher inflation and and from a fixed income investor especially what that could do to excessive duration exposure and what it could do for actually, you know, defaults directly in terms of companies that have been able to rely on the market to fund them, even though in a more normal time where there was way less liquidity available, those companies may not have been able to attract the capital to keep themselves in business. And I'll raise the term zombie companies, but the amount of zombie companies that couldn't have continued but for extremely low interest rates is actually still on the increase and it's you know it's a pretty high number i was surprised when i was reading about this recently it's almost 15 percent of companies that are relying on really low interest rates to continue on and but for them they would be in a lot lot more difficult situation in terms of an ongoing business so it's one of those things that it does worry me because it's not just a case of having low interest rates, but the market still needs to be willing to refinance you when it comes time to refinance those bonds. And they're pretty closely interlinked. So one can definitely impact the other. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess just following on in the inflation chat that we're having, how do inflation expectations impact the equity market? I guess we touched on a little bit of that, but also the property market. And, you know, should we be fixing our mortgages? (laughs) Well, I think you gave the uh, disclaimer at the start, so I'll I'll sort of tiptoe around that one in saying that I don't think rates are going to go particularly much lower, especially here in Australia. So if you do have a mortgage, I think we have probably seen the best of the fixed rates for now. Those fixed rates were largely able to be offered because we had a lot of support from the RBA, who was effectively offering very cheap money to the banks to support them through this recovery. Now that that has wrapped up, I think the banks will slowly start to normalise some of those really low rates. Nevertheless, I don't see the RBA particularly looking to move anywhere until 2024, as they say. And that's just because there's one thing to say, we'll give emergency funding to the banks to get them through the worst of the crisis. But the reality is demand for lending is actually still relatively muted, despite what you might hear about property markets going to new highs. The actual demand for new credit 
as opposed to someone selling their house in Sydney for, you know, X million and moving to Newcastle or someone selling their house in Melbourne and moving to the regions. That creates activity and noise and someone needs to buy that property. But the property being bought in Melbourne CBD is probably from someone else who has sold their house in the suburbs and is trading up. So there's a lot of dynamics in place there. But as to how it connects to interest rates, I don't see the RBA moving anytime soon. So to the extent that there'll still be opportunities for people to get into the housing market, I think it'll still be there. But yes, uh, I don't think we'll see those, those exciting rates that we saw even six months ago available, unless you're really lucky or the bank manager really likes you. We better call our mortgage brokers tomorrow morning, eh? (laughs) (laughs) So we also spoke on a previous episode about the ESG premium that we think is potentially currently in the market at the moment. Can you talk through the role of green bonds and sustainability-linked loans and potentially just why issuers are giving discounts for these products and how do they sort of determine, I guess, the extent of that discount that they're receiving currently? Yeah, well, in in terms of the extent of the discount, it's really just markets saying this the, the supply and demand. I think companies are always going to try and issue debt at the cheapest price possible, given the terms that they're offering. So if the market's banging down their door and oversubscribing 10 times for an issuance, then you know they're not made of stone. They're going to do what's best in their shareholders' interests. But I think the green bond and sustainability-linked bond market is really interesting for us. I think in Australia, we're about two to three years behind Europe especially, who's been the, uh, the leader in this space. But what it does for us as fixed income investors is it gives us a much more tangible way to participate in the ESG thematic than equity investors. So, you know, while as equity investors can actually get quite activist and directly contact CEOs, chairmen, influence boards, you know, proxy voting, all of those things are, are very tangible and can actually lead to, you know, really great outcomes but um, they're not quite as direct and tangible as a green bond or a sustainability-linked bond, where in the terms of the bond themselves, they set out what the funds are for, or in the case of sustainability-linked bonds, the targets that the company needs to meet to pay the lowest level of interest rates, whereas if they don't meet those targets, then they have to actually pay additional interest. So there's a direct financial incentive for them to achieve the goals that they set out in the sustainability-linked bond. So It's something that we do at Daintree. Our main fund at the moment, our core income fund, owns a little under 5% of the portfolio in green and sustainability-linked bonds, and we're hoping to grow that progressively over time. The main thing stopping us is really just a lack of supply at the moment. So we are limited in a certain extent. We can't just buy green bonds just because they're there. They need to pass through a range of other criteria too. So we are willing to make a sacrifice in terms of the yield premium or discount that we give up to own green bonds when all the other criteria are met. The reality is there's just way too much money chasing way too few bonds, especially in Australia, and that feeds through into the market supply and demand. Yeah, it's fantastic that the ESG movement is impacting, I guess, all elements of finance, and we're just seeing, as you said, really large demand and hopefully supply continues to follow. So why is sentiment important in the credit market and how does that play in to credit cycles so whether that's defining the beginning or or the end of a credit cycle 
Yeah. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. So there's a lot of liquidity out there at the moment. And generally speaking, most companies, if they come to market with a, a reasonable offering, they will generally attract the investor demand to get it sold. When sentiment dries up, all of a sudden the, um, the checklist to invest in a new company gets a whole lot tougher. You know, it gets longer and, and the, uh, the criteria gets a lot more difficult. In a tough sentiment market, there's no obligation for you to refinance a company that, you know, you're a little bit wary of. So company X might uh, have a bond maturing in three weeks, but sentiment is really low. They require it to be refinanced, but if there's not the sentiment there to refinance that then all of the investors will say, thank you very much, we'd like our money back. And then they'll be left to uh, find alternative ways to, to fund the business or to refinance that bond. And if they can't refinance that bond and the banks are not willing to help, then it starts a process. And one company in itself probably is not enough to start a cycle. But if we see a couple of weeks in a row where the market's unwilling to effectively fund several of these companies that come up for refinance, all of a sudden it starts to feed on itself. And the market worries about, you know, who could be next to not be refinanced, who could be next to come to market and not get fulfilled, and it starts to feed on itself. So sentiment is just one of those things in credit markets where there's no obligation for you to, to buy any particular bond. So if you can't attract the interest, there's much more of a, a hard date on it. You know, the maturity date is 30 June. You know, if you can't get it refinanced by then, then it's on your shoulders. So there's that time element coming up against the sentiment element. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that's an interesting tact on it. So I was recently listening to another podcast with a woman by the name of Gabby Rosenberg, who is the co-founder of Blossom, an app-based fintech platform designed to introduce younger generations to the fixed income asset class. I thought what was really interesting in her podcast, and you briefly touched on this at the start as well, was that she identified that historically there have been a lot of issues around liquidity, redemption ability, and initial amounts that are needed to be deposited in order to get access to the fixed income markets. So maybe if you could just give us a little bit of colour around that and your perspective on those three key areas. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, when it comes to liquidity, it's often not there when you need it most. And likewise, when you're not needing it, everyone seems to be knocking on your door and wanting what you own. So it's it's a bit like that in fixed income. And as I said, nothing in fixed income really trades on a central exchange. So if you want to sell something, you need to go and find the buyer, whether it's a broker who offers part of their balance sheet to buy it and put it on their books, and then they go off and uh, resell it to someone else, or whether you go to um, a broker that finds another buyer directly and just sort of sits in between the two parties, or you go and find a buyer directly yourself, that's a lot more work than ringing your broker or getting onto an online trading platform and, and hitting sell. So there is that aspect that really makes the barriers to entry just so much higher in, in fixed income. The large trade sizes, of course, I mentioned, mentioned earlier, 200,000 Aussie dollars is generally your entry level. There are some brokers that take that $200,000 parcel and actually cut it up into smaller amounts to try and deal with some of those issues, but that takes a lot of uh, work on the back end. It's not always simple to carve up those bonds into smaller parcels. So if someone finds a way to do that in a cost-effective way, that can really open up the market to a whole new suite of investors, then all power to them because I think it's going to um, really provide that access 
to a much broader group that can actually sort of get on and say, I can do this and I'm you know confident that I can do it in small steps first and then scale it up to the size I need as, as we go. And also just in terms of accessibility and some of the issuers involved, some of the issuers involved are not companies that need to issue public accounts. So that's some of the infrastructure players, it's airports, it's other private companies that have a, a bond issuance program but are not listed on the ASX or are not listed on a public exchange. So there's less requirement for them to issue information about their financials and their strategy and their outlook and all of those things that we as listed equity investors take for granted, the amount of disclosure that uh, most big companies are forced to make. In fixed income, that's not the case. So you need to have a different skill set, a different mindset, if you're going to wade into the market by yourself, thinking that you know you need to be a little bit more of an investment detective. You need to do a lot more work up front to understand the types of risks that you're taking in some of these more private companies that, that have less exposure to the, uh, the average investor. Yeah, thanks, Brad. So following on from that, what is... I guess the best way for younger people to get into fixed income investing if they wanted to, given that, you know, most uh, younger investors don't have $200,000 per company to, to invest. And following on from that, what is the Daintree difference and what can you offer your investors? Yeah. To sum it up, I think the best way to do it is via ETF. But before you just jump in and um, find the first ETF with a fixed income in its title and buy away, I think you need to distinguish between those ETFs that are passive and those that are active because in the market now you have a choice of both. And of course, being an active fixed income manager, we're biased towards the active, but we think there are many good reasons why active is the place to be. We actually offer a couple of active ETFs via one of our affiliates at eInvest. So there is that access for anyone that can trade on the ASX or CHI-X to access an active fixed income portfolio from ourselves. And there are several of our peers that have offerings in the market now as well. And that's in complement to the index ETFs that have been around for quite a while, are fairly well known, provide that very basic entry-level exposure. But as we've talked about, it comes with its own special set of risks that I think everyone needs to sort of take a minute, take a step back and understand just what sorts of risks you're taking when you look at any fixed income ETF. So, you know, that's duration, it's the starting yield, it's the overall credit rating of the ETF on a portfolio-weighted basis, it's the types of securities they can invest in, it's the uh, types of sectors that they look at and don't look at, do they have an ESG overlay, and several more. But I think ETFs are the way to do it. And in terms of what Daintree does, well, we're certainly in the active category rather than passive. We certainly look to as broad a universe as, as is practicable for us to find the best ideas. We have no compunction in saying no to something and reducing a weighting to zero in any company that either doesn't pass our ESG criteria, doesn't show relative value compared to its peers, its strategies changed to an approach that we don't like. All of these things can be catalysts to reduce our position and manage our risk because everything needs to check off before it gets into the portfolio. So having that really active approach is certainly important. And then we have risk management over the top, 
to make sure that we don't let our duration go much above a year or so, which means that whether rates are going up or rates are going down, it's not as much of a focus for us because we're busy making sure that the individual credits and the individual companies are as strong as they can be and offering the best relative value for us. Because at the end of the day, you're buying a fixed income product, not for the capital movements, not for the capital volatility, but indeed for the lack of it and that steady income that really is the hallmark of fixed income generally. That's awesome. Thanks, Brad. And I think that's really interesting just given the fact, you know, I don't think many people realise you can actually invest in fixed income ETFs, you know, not as easily as potentially equity, but there is exposure there that you can attain. So, you know, that's definitely been the most comprehensive lesson in fixed income I've ever sat through. So thank you so much for your time, Brad. We always like to finish the podcast with just one final question from all our fantastic speakers. So can you give us your top career tip? Sure. Maybe I'll sneak in two small ones. The first one is to always listen. So if if you're sitting at a desk and you're new in a role, be sure to absorb as much as possible from those more senior around you because you can read every textbook in the land. You can get A-plus scores and GPAs of, of as high as you can get, but there is no substitute for learning real lessons from people that have been there before you and have that experience. So tip number one is to always listen and absorb as much as possible. And tip number two is if you have an ambition to get to a certain role or a a certain level, whenever you find spare time in your current role, start to do the work as if you're in that next role because you never know when the opportunity might come up. Someone taps you on the shoulder, someone leaves, the business expands, If you're in the position where you've actually started to do the work of the job that you want to get to, you're in a much better position to put yourself forward and give yourself the best chance of progressing into that role. It worked for me multiple times, and I suspect it will work for me again. So it's something that served me very well even from uh, from the early days of my career. Thank you so much, Brad. You've really covered off a vast amount of information on the fixed income and bond market. I mean, we spoke about duration and yields and why adding fixed income is so important for portfolio diversification, the advantages of having an active fixed income product as opposed to a passive fixed income product, how you can, you know, everyday investor can get access to fixed income through ETFs. For example, Daintree Capital manages the e-invest fixed income portfolios called ECAS, eCore and eMax, which are available on ChiX. And so that was Brad Dunn from Daintree Capital. Thank you so much for joining us. It was such an interesting conversation. I definitely learned a lot and will take home so many tips for, for investing in fixed income. Thanks, Brad. 